Welcome back, or uh, just welcome. It's been a while since the last Preaching Sense podcast. The last few weeks have been a transition to a new website, and there's been a lot more focus on baseball, if you haven't noticed. Uh, This episode is basically an intro into the new Preaching Sense format. On this long-awaited episode of the podcast, I'm joined by one of the regulars, Jordan Rosenblum, uh, for an in-depth discussion about drugs, anxiety, and mental health. While neither of us has gone to med school and neither of us possess formal training in this field, we both have a ton of personal experience with antidepressants, and perhaps more importantly, we share expertise in self-reflection and also just logical thinking. It's something uh, I'm sure you've heard if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you've heard me talk about it a lot, guests talk about it a lot, Jordan and I talk about it a lot, uh, just how to think more rationally about everything. and. We apply this directly to thinking about thinking, uh, which is a little bit of a confusing topic. But the podcast itself, I think, is pretty cohesive and clear and I think really informative and helpful. So so if you're at all interested in gathering some additional insight on the way your mind works and on the way that certain things impact your mind, then uh, this is definitely an episode for you. I think there's something here for everyone. So uh hope you stick through it. It's a bit of a long one, but it's it's worth it. So enjoy. Generally mental health and drugs. Yeah, it's gonna be great. Okay. Alright, mm. I'm gonna put on a I'm gonna put on a beanie. Just hold on one sec. Okay. I won't be able to see it. No, it's not for you. Okay. I just think it, I just think it would be comfortable. Mm. I'm gonna see if where mine is also. I have one of those. Perhaps you have to be comfortable as well. Right. I don't know where it is. I'm not going to look for it. All right, there. Oh, All right. actually, here it is. Wow, BB's are cool. quotes. I know, dude. It's great. It's great. They're pretty great. I'm ready now. I have it on. It's okay. On so, I guess uh, in 2013, I started, I, uh, I started going to therapy, um, and this was after... I felt like a really expanded awareness after graduating uh, from school because it was the first time in my life that I didn't really have any sort of path or direction, and it was a lot of freedom and it was like a little over, it was a little overwhelming. I'm not saying I wanted like Vladimir Putin to like tell me what to do and decide <laughs> for me. I like freedom because I'm American and Americans like freedom. You're also a but, person. Um, I think all people like freedom. Uh, yes. No, actually, I don't agree with that. I, I think a lot of people like author- authoritarian. Some people actually prefer, like, to be told what to do. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, um, let's not argue about this. I, I agree. You win. You win this small bout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think life is a lot easier for those people in a lot of ways. Um, Go on. <laughs> yeah, so for, for, uh, for so I started uh, going to therapy then, and um, I was described as, like, I guess generalized anxiety, a little bit social sometimes, but also uh, obsessive compulsive sort of. Um, and and I, I guess this is uh, I'm sharing this stuff, but like I could couldn't really have this conversation so productively without like being honest. So I don't care. Um, yeah. So I guess what was bothering me was like there were certain. Uh, it felt like there were certain times. In, especially in social situations where I would get into some like it was really hard for me to process certain emotions and I would get caught up in these emotions um, and I felt like it was really taking away from my ability to like 
be engaged and connect with people. This is really bad. Um, and for a while, for a couple of years, I, I did therapy and that was, that was really helpful. Like, uh, uh, my therapist was like super smart and it was really good to talk. And just, I think it's always good to reflect in general, whether it's like something I've learned over the past couple of years, whether it's like meditation or, or writing or, or reflection with it, talking with someone with a friend or a trained professional, a trained friend. Um, I guess therapists in that way are kind of similar to being a fraternity because in both cases you're paying for <laughs> some sort of connection. Yeah. Um, but, it, but I guess in, in some ways it's not the same as being in a fraternity. Like most of the ways. Like, yeah, most that's true. That's true. But yeah, we never, um, we did it the first time I went to therapy instead of asking me like, uh, about my symptoms and like why I came in, we actually did a case race, me and my therapist. And she was like, if you can finish 30 beers with me in a couple hours, then, then, uh, then I will continue seeing you as a patient. So that was interesting. The lines are, yeah, they're quite a bit surprising. blurry between uh, therapy and fraternity life. It's kind of hard to tell which one someone's talking about. <laughs> I have that problem also. <laughs> yeah, but hopefully, hopefully uh, this podcast helps people uh, differentiate between the two because I, I think it really hasn't gotten talked enough about or talked about. It hasn't really gotten talked about. It really doesn't get talked about at all. I've never once heard it come <laughs> up, so it probably needs to be talked about more. Yeah. I don't want to comment on whether or not how much it's been talked about is enough or not. I, I just would like to comment that, uh, for the record, it hasn't been talked about. Absolute agreement um, for me on now that point, has. for sure. And, and now it has. And now it has. Now it's no longer yeah, so, zero. <laughs> it's in the category... It's now in the category of things that have been talked about. Excellent. Can you can you list some other things in that category, and then and then we can move on. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, just uh, looking around the room, hats—that's a thing that's been <laughs> talked about. Um, windows. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. For money. Sure. Um, books. Those are things money, that people yeah, have people, talked about. People talk about. There's a lot of movies that people. Where they talk about money and books and maybe even hats and windows too. That's those are really good examples. Thanks, man. Yeah, I really tried very hard for those examples. And uh yeah, <laughs> they've been talked about at least one more time than they already had, which was non zero. <laughs> you describe it sounds like you described the typical Meese room. <laughs> There's some ha some hats and books and some money lying around, probably in the open, just some co some coins on a windowsill. That's exactly what I'm looking some, at. Some stacks of <laughs> that's great that makes me feel nostalgic for living in Hoboken um, why are we talking about oh yeah because therapists are like uh, uh, fraternity presidents or something so um, yeah so that actually worked really well when I say it worked I, I, I really got a lot of the experience and I was really glad to I, fe I felt really grateful and like really stupid for, for having gone my whole life without trying to with, without, uh, without doing that without talking to a therapist. Um, but then when I moved to DC, I switched therapists eventually. Like I, I went a few months without, and then I switched therapists. And again, it was another transition point in my life. So there was a few months of like groundlessness where anxiety is sort of pervasive. And I, uh, the, the, this therapist was more, the first therapist I had was, was not very open to 
um, medication unless it's absolutely necessary. And this therapist was much more open to it. Um, basically on the grounds that he thought that I would be able to better engage, get more out of the therapy if I had the, the anxiety medicine would allow me to get, get more out of the therapy basically. So I guess by lessening some, making emotions easier to process and lessening some of the negative emotions that I have to deal with, I'd be able to better pursue my values through the therapy. So I, I listened to him because at that point I was pretty, uh, I was pretty, I was really like dissatisfied and when the, my new job in corporate, in corporate America, um, was, I mean, it, I think it's as good as it, it, it can – it's it's really good for a corporate job, but, like, it still is kind of uh, – like, I was, like, an automaton, and it felt like my routine was just staring at a computer all the time, and, like, I was in, stuck in this productivity cycle that, that made it hard to do anything uh, just for intrinsic good. It felt like everything I was doing was just working towards – like producing like some sort of cancer disease or something. So I, basically I was at a low enough point where it felt like it was worth, uh, it was worth uh, giving the medicine a shot because yeah, it just didn't seem like it was worth, uh, I mean, if at this point there was it, almost like there was nothing to lose. Um, it felt like, so, so I gave it a shot. And the, the interesting thing, when you give it a shot, when you like say you want to take medicine, I feel like you, it's very easy to have it prescribed. So like you just go into the psychiatrist, you make a one-time appointment and you're like, yeah, I'm dealing with all this shit. Um, like, well, hold on. There's, um, there's a couple of things I want to yeah. talk about before we go yeah. more in depth about medicine and drugs. Cause we're going to, we're probably going to talk about medication a lot. Um, we both probably have a lot to say there, but there's two, there's so many different ways to go with this, but I have two main things I want to speculate on, and the first thing is whether or not people have, like, what the difference in access to tools is for people in different areas of life or people who just, maybe are, they live in the same place, but they just have different parents, and for whatever reason, they have varying access to different tools, like mental tools, how to deal with emotions, deal with thought, um, difference in status in life, like how old you are specifically. Um, that certainly would seem to have a huge impact. But I think there is probably a meaningful distinction between generalized anxiety that is the result of some physical process that is seemingly random and then circumstantial anxiety. Um, those lines are probably really fuzzy and hard to differentiate a lot of the time. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's necessary to mention that while there's a ton of overlap, there's probably a big distinction there. And neither of us have any sort of clinical Wait. background here. It's more speaking from personal experience Wait. and just logical Wait, thought. What but do you mean? Can you, can you can you clarify a little bit what you mean by generalized anxiety and circumstantial? Because I I don't get it. So I think some people will develop anxiety due to circumstances, just because of something traumatic that happened in their life or just a tough thing they're going through. Um, I, like yeah. not everyone who moves to a new city where it's difficult is going to develop um, a lot of problems being anxious. But then there are also people Surely. who have gone through basically no turmoil that uh, happen to develop anxiety also. Um, maybe it's due to putting drugs in your body like other drugs, uh, marijuana or 
whatever cocaine or even stronger drugs maybe it's i guess that could be circumstantial too but it's it seems like it would be different or just some sort of genetic thing where you come from an anxious family and you are sort of naturally anxious just just the way you were born so i think there's a difference there but i think there's a ton of overlap i don't know it's it seems like it's it's important to know which one we're talking about so, so you would say generalized is more like uh, innate, I guess. Yeah, I don't mean generalized in the way you're describing it. Generalized, I think you were saying that the right, anxiety right. is not a specific uh, symptom. Just uh, yeah, let's call yeah, just, it innate yeah. anxiety, where you just have anxiety for no particular meaningful reason. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I, yeah, actually, that's a good point because I, I think. It's really uh, it's totally a mix of, of uh, genetics and upbringing and um, and circumstances, I guess, so it's nature and nurture. And I think some of it's learned, but it, at a certain point, it doesn't really matter so much because I, I think there are times in my life where I haven't been as anxious, but but it's always it's it's always felt like I've had a like it's always been a more played a pro- more prominent role in my life than it has in people I, I, that I know besides me. Um, I think I definitely am more sensitive to it. So whether that's from genetics or a lot, like a common, like a, uh, a lot of nurture, it, I guess it doesn't really matter uh, uh, so much because I mean, it does matter to an extent, but at this point it would be, it would be really hard or how I felt in DC when I started taking the meds is that it would be really hard to, overcome this on my own because even if it was mostly uh learned the anxiety or whatever circumstantial then i mean it's it's so deeply ingrained that why not make it easier for myself by taking meds if uh, if like i'm at this point of where i like i don't know that i can do it otherwise so why not make it easier for myself well, so medication, I won't refer to it as a last resort because I don't think that's totally accurate, but there are other ways, just increased awareness. Um, I guess sometimes that can foster more anxiety, but there are mental practices before you get to drugs, like just talk therapy that can reduce anxiety or other mental conditions. Um, literally everything that you do, I mean, you know this, literally everything you do changes the chemistry of your brain. Like meditation has been basically proven at this point to change the amount of gray matter in your brain. Um, I'm sure that other stuff has probably smaller effects. Meditation is one of the most prominent non, uh, non-medicine ways to alter your brain makeup. But basically anything you do, like uh, just having a good workout and being in flow state for a significant yeah. period of time, you're going to – maybe it's not permanent, but you're, in, you're increasing certain functions in your brain and just overall changing the makeup. So – there are definitely ways like I think some people would think that the only way to really change your brain chemistry is drugs. And I think that that's just completely not true. Drugs may be more potent. And yeah, I would say they definitely are more potent in most yeah. cases. But I think some some people don't need that potent um, – they don't need that potent solution. And I think it's a really fine line because for some people it's really, really – easy to see that it's a cop-out to go straight to drugs because there's just no no willingness to work hard. And I, I, I guess maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but no willingness to just go through the, the first few steps before you have to get there. I think there's sort of a linear progression there where you sort of escalate intensity of 
the treatment. And I think that meditation or just like talking or whatever, that's a less intense way and less severe way to alter your brain than drugs. So you may not want to go all the way up the ladder immediately and sort of work your way up because the less severe the treatment is, the less consequences and less side effects you're going to get. Like there aren't side effects really for basically anyone from just thinking more or from talking to someone like there aren't really side effects there. And if there are any, they're not as extreme as side effects of drugs. So while some yeah, people certainly need really drugs. shitty people, then there, there could be really negative side effects of that. Right. I, I, won't I say we anything. have to generalize. <laughs> we, yeah. If you're talking to people who suck, then fine. But if you're talking to licensed <laughs> professionals, I mean, yeah, we have to generalize here because it's, there's just too many people who suck. People who suck should have like a, they should have a warning label that says like may cause drowsiness and general discomfort <laughs> and teary eyes or something. Yeah. People who are just really boring and yeah, then they should, you should know that your brain is going to be changed negatively by speaking to them. I think that is fair. Oh, uh, that, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There's going to be a ton of self-fulfilling prophecy there. Even, even as a joke, I think that actually is pretty <laughs> serious. I think that that certainly is true. But I guess um, my overall point is that it's really hard to know when someone needs medication or doesn't. And I think that there's just not enough – there's not enough knowledge of the ways that people can be helped before they get to medication. Well, if you think of – I think I agree in a, with the overall sentiment. But if, if you think of my situation, I like tried everything. And what when I decided to – after like two years of therapy and like meditating and writing and, and I was really exhausted and I thought that, I mean, I, I would only, I would only like for me, I would only recommend it to people that are like really feel desperate for it because it can help a lot and it does help a lot of people. So I, I would only recommend it if like, if it's necessary because there are side effects too. And I'll talk more about the, uh, those later, but, um, it certainly plays a really uh, substantial role and it can be a lot uh, faster acting, I think, than a lot of the other ways. But yeah, we could, we talk more about the side effects later, but, but I do agree with the overall sentiment that like, it's a, it's, I would not recommend it to anyone unless they, they felt they were really desperate for it. And I guess that's kind of a, like it's a, it's a circumstantial thing where, each person kind of has to decide that for themselves. Yeah, I guess the opposite side of the argument, I mean, just to, it's, I guess I'm countering myself here, but there are some drugs that are mild enough where there just is no real tangible side effect. Like my, from my own personal experience, I was on this drug called Lexapro for most of high school, and it's one of the mildest, yeah. um, I forget if it's exactly antidepressant or anti-anxiety, it might be some of yeah. both. It's it's an antidepressant. It's Lexapro and and sertraline, the one that I'm on, mm-hmm. or the more commonly named Zoloft. Those are like very very common, and the side effects are not that serious. But even with the those are also like the most generalizable in their uh, effectiveness. So that you get like those are by far the most prescribed in the in the world. Like both of those, mm-hmm. um, and you get like ten percent of almost ten percent of the U.S. could be on something like that. Yeah, and that would mean it's certainly overprescribed. But for something with so little consequence, so little negative consequence, the placebo effect there might be enough. Like I was prescribed when I was 15 and I took it, I guess, till I was 18 or so. Um, 
and at my age, I, I didn't really understand why I was anxious. I knew that it was partly, I mean, it was a lot of social anxiety. So I knew that it was partly circumstantial, but I also probably had this idea that I had this internal anxiety, which I don't think I have. I mean, the fact that I don't have it anymore is sort of proof that it's not a genetic thing or at least some evidence. Um, so because I didn't, yeah. wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have a fully developed brain. I was only 15. I wasn't fully equipped or I didn't even, I guess you could even just say I didn't have the literature on the subject. I didn't really understand what was going on in my head. Uh, the idea that medication was going to fix me even just a little bit, whether or not it did anything, I felt comfortable just knowing that I was on something that was making things a little easier. So I think yeah. the state of how much you plus, know changes like what the, what the prescription should be. Yeah. I mean, it's, even for you, like in those years, I think it's really important that, especially important in those developmental years that whatever sort of internal anxieties like or negative emotions or, or whatever um, that one is dealing with, that those can really get in the way of important like life successes that people should have growing up. And if, uh, if uh, these like um, moderate antidepressants can help uh, avoid that and fight that stuff, I think that plays a, a valuable role. Yeah, you're saying that there's just so much more at stake as a teenager in your early 20s that any sort of negative life experience or just something that gets in the way from a potentially positive life experience is going to have much larger ramifications down the road than let's say something that happens in your late 20s or in your 30s or 40s because there's just the during your yeah, development sure. things things matter more in the future than what they do like from age 40 to 60 things from age 15 to 35 are much more meaningful. Yeah, I think that yeah, I think that's true. Like down the spectrum, as you get closer to to zero. I mean, if you look at uh, like early, the effects of early education, like preschool education, and this is like a political argument now. Giving it like the argument is to give everyone universal uh, pre K, like age three and four, because the effects of that are so pronounced, like throughout life. There's like huge uh, re return on investment, and and I think it just goes because. Like those are the developmental, more developmental phases of life. Not to say that the other parts of life don't matter and aren't changeable because they are also, but it's more, it's, it's much, uh, there's, there's much more intense change, I think. Yeah. Not to veer off the topic too much, but it, it would seem like there should be a much greater focus on mental maturity during grade school years than there is. Like you can learn knowledge you can become book smart later on and there's just so little attention paid to figuring out just how to be a person and it matters i think in college that's where you're taught how to be a person more so than in high school or middle school or especially elementary school and preschool down the line um but it, it seems like it's it's inverted you it you can retain the fact the factual knowledge in college um just probably just as easily as you can retain it when you're younger but if you're taught how to behave and just how to think about your own thoughts and how to think about yourself too late, then yeah. you've already probably gone through some really, really difficult to overrule, or I guess override experiences. Like they're, they're so heavily ingrained that you're basically just trying to fix everything when you get to whatever, like what our age is now in our twenties, we're now trying to, right undo 
bad teaching about how to conduct ourselves that we were that we were either told or just that we developed internally on our own. We're trying to fix everything that we right. knew that was wrong from our childhood. Right. There's so much focus on like science and mathematics and, and the STEM subjects and um, and then like literacy and those things are all really important. But but also it's also important just to like basic life skills and like interpersonal interaction and um, like some sort of existential understanding of existence that's more broad than what's taught now. I think education is very, uh, in a lot of ways, it's very tied to outcomes rather than the interpersonal side of life and the uh, self-awareness, building self-awareness and things like that. I mean, it's only focused on the much more tangible, like technical subjects, I think. Yeah, it definitely is. And I mean, we can, we can move this even from education just to things that our parents teach us, not just in schools, but just things that are either explicitly or implicitly given meaning during our lives. It's just, it's sort of just wrong. The things that we think are important, even now, the things we think are important to some degree are going to be, are going to seem like complete bullshit at some point. Yeah. There's, there's all, there's nothing more important than what's going on in your own head. We've talked about this a bunch, how you, you essentially just are what your brain is. So you, yeah, there is nothing more important to do, at least for your own personal well-being, than to improve the quality of what's going on inside your head. And I think the problem with this, this wrong meaning or this wrong explanation of what things matter, it comes from the issue that the people who are in charge have, they have too much skin in the game, I think, where your parents don't have the they don't have the capability to let you sort of figure something out with when it's risky to do so. And when, you know, maybe it could delay your development in some way, like delay your development in school by six months. Um, they, they have too much invested in just how you're doing mainly because they see you every day. It, it would be too difficult for a parent to let their child I mean, you could even say it's a 15-year-old. We don't have to talk about just really young kids, but like me at 15, for my parents to say, here are the tools, yeah. like you should just sort of reflect on why you're feeling anxious. Here's some good stuff to read. You're going to feel really anxious probably, maybe even more so. It might amplify it for a short amount of time, but within several months, you'll be better off and you won't have needed medication to do it and you'll be stronger later on. But because teachers and parents are right, sort of this- part of the status quo. So much, right? They they'd rather see a stay, see it stay the same and then just get fixed, and maybe it'll be worse in the future. And I don't think this is a conscious decision, but teachers and parents, I think there's this immediacy that is needed, and I think that's that's just wrong, and it's not necessarily the fault of these people. Yeah. Um, where should where should we go from here? I think uh, should we get more in depth about the sort of ethical ramifications of drugs for treating whatever symptoms there are? Um, yeah, well, I, th I think uh, we can't really have that conversation without ha having a conversation about, like, the overall effects and mechanisms, like how these things work, and also sure. what the side effects are. So I think it'd be good to talk about those things. And okay. Um, I'm going to play... Uh, let me play this uh, yeah. Sam Harris clip that I have for for an explanation 
it it talks a little bit okay. about psychedelics too, but it's a sort of general statement about anxiety medication. He loves, that guy loves drugs. Yeah, yeah he does. Um, all right, it's like two minutes long. Medications that reduce anxiety generally work by increasing the effect of the inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA, thereby diminishing neuronal activity in various parts of the brain. But the fact that dampening arousal in this way can make people feel better does not suggest that they would feel better still if they were drugged into a coma. Similarly, it would be unsurprising if psilocybin reduced brain activity in areas responsible for self-monitoring, because that might in part account for the experiences that are often associated with this drug. This does not give us any reason to believe that turning off the brain entirely would yield an increased awareness of spiritual realities. However, the brain does exclude an extraordinary amount of information from consciousness. And like many people who have taken psychedelics, I can attest that these compounds throw open the gates. Positing the existence of mind at large is more tempting in some states of consciousness than in others. But these drugs can also produce mental states that are best viewed as forms of psychosis. As a general matter, I believe that we should be very slow to draw conclusions about the nature of the cosmos on the basis of inner experiences, no matter how profound they may seem. One thing is certain. The mind is vaster and more fluid than our ordinary waking consciousness suggests, and it is simply impossible to communicate the profundity, or seeming profundity, of psychedelic states to those who have never experienced them. Indeed, it is even difficult to remind oneself of the power of these states once they have passed. Many people wonder about the difference between meditation and other contemplative practices and psychedelics. Are these drugs a form of cheating, or are they the only means of authentic awakening? They are neither. All psychoactive drugs modulate the existing neurochemistry of the brain, either by mimicking specific neurotransmitters or by causing neurotransmitters themselves to be more or less active. Everything that one can experience on a drug is at some level an expression of the brain's potential. Hence, whatever one has seen or felt after ingesting LSD is likely to have been seen or felt by someone somewhere without it. However, it cannot be denied that psychedelics are a uniquely potent means of altering consciousness. Teach a All right. That is enough of that. So I think the main point, uh, I don't know how relevant this is because I think I have two main points. Um, the first thing that jumps out is that people have a pretty distorted view of how drugs work on the brain. Like the idea that you're basically just altering neurology, but you're not creating new, new activity. I think that that's True, pretty yeah. important of a distinction. Like the the drugs are not changing the brain in ways that it can't change itself. So I think the idea that your brain is going to experience side effects that are really, really catastrophic. I think that that's wrong because the brain can do all of that stuff itself. I think the side effects are more physical that you'd be worried about, like side effects to your kidney or your liver or your heart. I think those are the side effects that I'm more concerned with from drugs because the altering yeah. of the brain, it is it is a pretty natural thing. You're basically just sending signals to have the brain act in a different way. So I don't think it's too worrisome uh, to see mental side effects from drugs. And I think usually when you stop taking a drug, assuming it's not addictive and you can't stop taking it, then your brain sort of reverts back to its normal state to some degree. Um, so I think that that is important. And then the other thing is that we can talk about how anxiety medication just kind of numbs everything because I think that that's what the beginning portion of that Sam Harris clip is alluding to. And yeah, that's sort of a philosophical discussion uh, we 
I'm sure we'll get into, but what are your thoughts on just like the, the functionality of brain processing after, uh, after taking drugs like that? I think there's a good uh, commonality between psychedelics and antidepressants as, and I like the way that, uh, Sam Harris thinks about it because for antidepressants, it's sort of a trade-off. I think some of the common side effects besides the physical ones, which I think are very, uh, or maybe you prefer just effects, um, I, rather than side effects since they're hmm. just like natural things. Or yeah, that probably uh, is better anyway. <laughs> but besides the physical ones, which are like, let's say, uh, sexual dysfunction and weight gain are really common for the drugs we talked about. Um, but some of the other ones that the people talk about, and they're 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 more moderate with the with with the sertraline and and the the SSRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, but they still exist. And and uh, it's basically emotional blunting is one of them, which you kind of talked about. Which if you see in Garden State, Garden State talks about it. It's basically uh, like a, having like a more narrow emotional spectrum, so you don't feel anxious as much, but you also don't feel there's less depth of emotion on, on the high end. Also, um, so I think I relate with that to an extent. Um, and then another big one is, and this is a bigger issue for me, um, but it's is behavioral apathy. So it's like it's like more recklessness and having less self control and having a much more short term orientation because. I guess you're not in line with that uh, anxiety regulation mechanism anymore. So it's almost like, I don't know how it works. It's like, it's like nothing matters so much, I guess. Nothing's making you anxious, but nothing, also nothing really is that important. Um, and that was one of the big reasons why I stopped taking it. But having said that, the reason you have to weigh the, the, the slight emotional blunting and behavioral apathy with the positive effects because depression and anxiety when they become at levels that they're like disorders, those things are really fucking bad. They have really fucking bad side effects also. And I don't mean just sexual dysfunction, which depression is horrible for, or like ideation of suicide is, is sometimes described as a side effect for anxiety medicine medicine. But think about that with just having depression. That's way fucking worse. Right. Even so, just a less extreme example, example like loss of appetite or lack of motivation. I mean, those things have pretty dramatic yeah. implications, even if we're not going for stuff that's as extreme as suicidal thoughts. Yeah. 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 Thank you for those more uh, moderate um, and worldly examples. No problem. But um, so, yeah. When deciding whether whether to take medicine, you have to think about like I I thought about like whether it would help me live more and experience more of life or experience less. And I think for someone that was super caught up, like having a lot of difficulty processing emotions, that it really helped me uh, experience a, a, a fuller emotional spectrum. Even though perhaps the highs weren't as high as they possibly could have been, I think the upside is higher without meds. Um, it really helped. It really helped me engage in, in life and get, kind of get out of a funk and and sort of uh, rewire my brain and, and have some more positive like experiences. And whereas without the meds, it was really hard to to get out of like to to regulate some sort of emotions, to process some sort of emotions. So I think there's definitely a lot of people that can benefit and like live more from taking meds. And that's the same, like even if it's just for a period of time, because I actually am not taking them anymore. And that's for some of the reasons we've stated, like behavioral apathy and blunting 
emotional blunting and also just like having less upside overall, I think, um, in the emotional spectrum. Those are all reasons I stopped taking it. But overall, I mean, th- and this is a point I want to make really clear is that I think the mainstream consensus on how medicine works or like how it's used, it's basically how it was prescribed to me was a take it for like a year to 18 months and it'll help you better engage with therapy, AKA better engage with uh, pursuing. It'll help you pursue your values uh, a little more easily and it'll help you rewire your brain. And, and some of there's some articles I've read on this about uh, how the main mechanism behind uh, depression and anxiety is this negative cognitive bias. So it's hard to regulate emotions um, and, people that are experiencing these elements are much more in tune to negative information than positive information. And the main way that these depressants work is to either erase that bias or reverse that bias. So you're noticing more positive uh, information and you're not, you're not uh, being ca- uh, catastrophic about every piece of information. So I think by taking the drugs for just like 12 months or 18 months, it can help you rewire your brain and be less biased, uh, rationally negative. And then after that, you can be good to go. Kind of, it's kind of like a reset, like a reset button. There was something that we were sort of accidentally hinting at, which I'm happy you brought us back from a little, is that, um, the idea that there's some sort of inflection point where beyond a certain threshold, you need medication and below a certain threshold, you don't need medication. I think that that's completely the wrong way to look at it. I don't think it's that black and white because like what you're saying, you're, you're operating in this pretty narrow gray area here where you are engaging in the right kind of reflection, the right kind of therapy while also taking some small amount of medication. And sure, there are people that fall below the threshold where they don't even need any medication. Um, They can just do the therapy and do the reflection. Like currently, I mean, I, I have anxieties, but I sort of go through them and maneuver them in my own mind without medicine. And maybe medicine would help and I would reduce anxiety. But I just don't feel that it's currently necessary. However, maybe with medicine, my quality of mental state would just be improved. Like it's, it's certainly adequate to me in my mind. Like I have no, I have no issues with where my mental state is, but there's no, there's, it's obvious that it could always be better. So I don't know like where, where you draw the line where you're in a bad enough place, like on a scale of one to 10, if your mental state is an eight, do you mess with that? where medication can get you to a 10 out of 10, like is eight out of 10 good enough? I mean, obviously if you're a two out of 10, you need more, more drastic. Yeah. I I don't think you go to meds to get from good to great though. I I don't think that's because of the side effects. Like when I was on them, I was always like constantly questioning whether I should be on them. And I still had like the same sort of anxieties, but I just wouldn't, caught up in them. It was easier for me to process. So I would never like suggest using them to go from good to great. It's more only from bad to bad to good or bad to like even. I, I think the side effects are bad enough that it's not worth, it doesn't just improve in every instance. Well, I have, I sort of have a problem with that philosophically because people do plenty of risky things every day to improve their quality of life from good to great. And it might not just be, well, I'll give some examples of where it's mentally and where it's not mentally. 
um, from a mental perspective, um, let's say excessive working out, like really intense weightlifting, there's some physical risks there where you could get hurt, um, but you're doing that to improve your mental state or um, something like really intense meditation could have some side effects where you overthink things and then you become more anxious. Uh, but like even driving a car, you're improving your quality of life from good to great, let's say, but you risk death every time you do it. So where, like, I don't really see medication as intrinsically different than those things. You're basically talking about improving your mind, improving your overall well-being with a potential pitfall. I, I think that all decisions can sort of fit in that in that way of thinking about it. Well, I that's fair, but I think the main thing with medication is that it, it limits. I think it puts a limit on your like the upside that you couldn't like on your overall awareness that you, you couldn't necessarily experience without it. Well, I guess it would depend what kind of medication we're talking about. So let's keep it just to. About- SSRIs, the ones that I've that you and I have taken, okay, the only ones I really have read about. I mean, the the ones besides that, I, I had uh, benzodiazepines are a big one, and those are just like tranquilizers, so they just make you feel less. And I, I mean, I think that one's pretty straightforward in, in the trade off, so I don't even think it's so interesting. But uh, for the SSRIs, I think it's much more nuanced because it, it can help you lead a more rewarding life for sure and live how you want to live but it it does have some sort of it it imposes some if you're you're taking it when you take that stuff you're always uh, on the meds right so it's kind of permanently changing your consciousness when maybe you I I, I guess certain people might prefer that way of life but it, it does it is different I think okay so the point I raised is a bit different from what you were talking about let me just clarify what I was saying first so Let's say there's a pill that has physical side effects. It wouldn't affect your mind, but it would it could harm you physically. And by taking it, happy people would take it, and it would make them more happy. Um, it wouldn't it wouldn't diminish any happiness. It would just be purely to raise happiness. But in some small percentage of cases, it harms you greatly physically. I think that sort of medication would just depend on a person's propensity for risk. And I don't think there would be a right answer there. It would just depend on the risk tolerance for each individual person. Um, But to talk about what the antidepressants do, they basically narrow the spectrum of emotion you can feel, or um, I guess more accurately, it would be narrow the distribution because I don't think it removes the extreme highs and extreme lows, but it just makes them far less frequent um, you can disagree with me there if you think that that's off. But, I do. Okay, so let's yeah. let's say that I'll, – I'll grant you that. Let's say that it just removes the highs and the lows, which would also narrow the distribution and sort of centralize well, your emotional I, scale. Um, let, if let, me, let, me, yeah, uh, go let me let me add a, clarif- a clarifier just because I think it does that to a small extent, but I think – I think more more so, like the emotions are still there, but it makes it easier to to regulate them, I guess. Because I, I mean, for me, I, I was able to. I, I guess it does. It doesn't even matter from my experience, but I, you're able to feel the entire emotional spe- spectrum. But it's easier to like naturally move through emotions in a way that de- like depression and anxiety uh, can make it really like impossible, almost impossible to. It feels like it's impossible to move through. So 
and and that in that way, I think the the medication can really work. Right, but, but doesn't I, I still don't see it? Yeah. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, doesn't the ability to move through your best emotions sort of diminish those emotions? I think it sort of would take away from those best emotions because the more aware you are of your highs, the less high those highs will be. The more aware, would you say say that in a different way? So the ability to maneuver through all emotions would seem to reduce the intensity on both ends of the spectrum. Like if you're feeling really, really harshly sad, just as unbelievably depressed and unhappy as you can, the ability to maneuver through that would, it's not just a tool to get rid of the emotion. It's, it's sort of just a numbing on that emotion. I think it does both. So it would seem to have that numbing effect on your best moments, your best emotional states where the more you can maneuver through your best emotional states, the less good those best uh, emotional states will be. I have a problem with the numbing thing because that's true for some antidepressants like the benzos, but it's not true for the ones – it's not so true for the ones that we're talking about. Okay, the yeah. SSRIs because ah, okay. It's only – if you look at if you look at like uh, research on this, there is there is evidence of emotional blunting is the term that they use for the SSRIs in a very small amount of cases, and typically, the the prescription is just to to lessen the dose. For me, from my personal experience, I still like. I, I would say the most like uh, salient feature of it was that I when when on the medicine, it was much easier for me to to process emotions and I suspected that that perhaps that I had more of a short-term orientation and I was more reckless and perhaps I didn't it didn't feel like I quite felt the full spectrum but I wouldn't say it's not a tranquilizer so it doesn't it doesn't numb it doesn't numb in that way I think it just it maybe slightly changes I, I mean the, the, if you're just going by the evidence only in a few cases is emotional blunting, uh, even if, even like, is there evidence of that? Okay. So just to clarify before we move deeper into the thing we're really trying to talk about, um, the tranquilizing drugs are not used as frequently. Is that what you're saying? Like those, those drugs you would be very concerned about, but they're just not as common. Well, those are, those are more common for, they're not as common. No. And, and they're more, uh, they're more they're for more severe cases. So, mm-hmm. I think you you need to be more desperate if those if those things are necessary. There's a certain like, point of desperation where the limiting of your upside of happiness on your happiness spectrum, the limiting of that is is acceptable given how dire your situation is. I think there are plenty of cases where that would exist, but for the average person sure. that's not even on the table. Yeah, I mean for, for me when when I was first prescribed, the doctor gave me a she said, here's some uh, searchling, take it every day. Um, and also here are some benzos and you could take them for like acute, acute circumstances. And I remember the three out of the first five days I took the medicine, the, the benzos also. And I was like, I felt like I was like drunk at work and I just didn't give a shit about anything. And I was like, kind of like in a happy mood also, but I was very much apathetic and like, I felt like almost numbed. So I, I ended up like throwing out all the medicine in a, 
in a fit of rage on the fifth day. <laughs> that must have been but, fun. Um, yeah, I would say it just was too much unlike real life for me to to want to have that be like a regular occurrence. But I think for sure for people that that need to like the the anxiety is severe enough, then not sure. I think it can play a role in getting them back to like healthy functioning. Okay, cool. You've touched on the point that I wanted to go into next, the uh, not enough like real life thing. So there are two there are two different ways that reducing your negative emotions would be bad. One is when the drug also uh, coincides with um, a simultaneous reduction of positive emotion if it's if it's if it's sort of dumbing down the whole scale like that would be bad. Um, maybe not objectively bad, but it could be bad in some cases and it would have some at least bad effects. But the second way is just by the sheer act of reducing your negative aspects of your, of your emotional scale, you would then have a weaker sense of positive experience, just relatively speaking. So if you can sort of, if you can never feel sadness, then happiness doesn't feel as good. Like the best moments in life are generally preceded by the worst moments in life or overcoming adversity, that sort of thing. So to there's a fine line there because you do want to limit sadness and you want to limit suffering, but some degree of suffering and even specifically with anxiety, some degree of anxiety helps with creating positive experiences. Like without anxiety, you would have far less motivation. There's, a, there's an amount of anxiety that is necessary to succeed. There's an amount of anxiety that is necessary to yeah. appreciate the times when you aren't anxious. So it's very difficult, I think, to figure out what that degree of anxiety is. But I think it's a scary thing when you start. I won't even. I won't say artificially because I don't think that it matters that it's artificial. Like I don't think it matters that it's with drugs. I mean, you could do it with whatever mental practices. It would be the same thing. Uh -huh. I just think it's a scary thing when you start diminishing from your your conscious experience at all because then you're potentially reducing unintended components of your conscious experience. Yeah, I yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's why that it I still like I don't see it as serving any purpose to go from like good to great, for example. I think it it's it's a treatment. I mean, the way it's the way that these things are regarded as is, is more of a treatment to restore like healthy functioning rather than some sort of like uh, turbo boost. Yeah. I think that that's difficult because there are plenty of things that we do all the time. Like the examples I mentioned to improve from good to great. Most things, most things that happy people do are with the intention of improving from good to great. Like, quitting a job you like to try to get a job that you like more is is a risk to go from good to great and it has potential negative consequences. So I don't think there's an intrinsic difference between doing that within your own mind and doing it overall. I think it's sort of the same thing. But I do yeah, think but I, it matters more to go from worse to fine. Yeah. Yeah, that was Say all again. I wanted to that was yeah, that was all I wanted to say is that I do agree with you that it matters way more to return from ne from a negative experience to a neutral or positive experience. Like to go from a three to a six on a scale of one to 10 is much more meaningful than going from 
a seven to a 10, like those three points where you're improving from improving from bad to decent is, is more meaningful just because I don't think the scale is linear. I think that you sort of like the happier you are, the more you open yourself up and you become more capable of absorbing the good things in life. Like, I think there's a, there's a compounding spiral effect on both sides of the spectrum where the worse off you are, the worse off you'll get. And the better off you are, the better off you'll get. So just sort of flipping from one side of the spectrum to the other is, is bigger than going more in one direction or more in the other. I think just going from bad to good should be the most important thing, but that doesn't mean going from good to great doesn't matter. I think that's, that's all I was trying to say there. Yeah. But I guess what I'm caught up on is how would the meds help someone go from good to great? Well, because if you're experiencing anxiety only 10% of the time, well, actually, I think that would probably be a good amount. Let's say you're experiencing anxiety 25% of the time, whereas someone who'd be um, treated medically for anxiety is experiencing anxiety 50% of the time. I don't know, just throwing random numbers out there. But let's say you're really fine 75% of the time and anxious 25%. Overall, you're probably still doing well and you'd probably still consider taking medication or doing some sort of mindfulness practice to reduce that anxiety a bit more because it's a little more than you'd like and you could be even happier if you were anxious just a little less often. Like I think I fit into that category where maybe I'm anxious a quarter of the time or some percentage that wouldn't make me clinically anxious but is more than I'd like to be. So I'm constantly, even though it's not medicated, um, I'm constantly looking for ways to either deal with or reduce the anxiety and kind of just improve my mental state from good to better. But it's not like you can just take the anxiety pill one time and then, and then that's it. Like the rest of the month you're like 5% less anxious or something. Mm -hmm. You're like choosing to fundamentally alter your brain chemistry consistently to achieve that 5% boost in, in anxiety, lessened anxiety. So I don't know. It always comes off with a, a trade off, and and it and I, I think it wouldn't just be making you, in any sort of objective sense, like you would be, have less anxiety if you took anxiety medicine, sure, but it it wouldn't necessarily make you greater. Not necessarily. I'm just saying it could. I think if you can do it in I, ways I that know. have I don't no even side. Know how it would really. Okay. Well. We can, I guess we can cut that there because that's, that's not even, I, I wanted to make what I think is a more interesting point anyway, is that I think there's this narrow band of an anxiety level that is important. So the go-to example I've heard for this is um, what to do about medicine for someone who's suffering is let's say a parent has just lost their child, their kid dies, and they're offered a pill that can make them forget the suffering that they felt about the kid. Like they, they won't, they'll still know everything about who their child was. They're not going to forget the memory of them, but they just will somehow the pill will wipe away that negative emotion while doing nothing to inhibit their positive emotions. Like their, their top end of their spectrum would be the same, but this perfect medication would just, would just kill the suffering that they're feeling. Is that ethically or even just preferably a good thing to do and if it's not then to what degree would that be a good thing to do because a pill that would reduce suffering by just a little bit 
I think almost anyone would agree is worth it. Like if you could reduce the suffering you felt by 10% of what you felt for, you know, the grief of the kid dying, um, that I think anyone would agree that that's a good thing. But there's a certain point where people would start disagreeing. Like, wait a minute, you're, you're feeling almost nothing now. You're, you're now removing the amount that you care and this is now bad. So how do you, how do you sort of weigh that? I, I don't think the suffering, even in that example, is a problem unless unless it's getting in the way of of if it, if it's like an unnatural suffering and it's it's not it's not being processed in reasonable like time standards. Well, can but can you I explain what that, you mean by question, natural unnatural? Yeah, if if you're not if you're unable to move through it, if it's been like two or three years since the kid died and you, and you still are like you lost your job or, or something, you can't get out of bed. If you're unable to process the emotion, then I think that this medicine really helps. But if you're if you're going through like a normal sort of healthy grieving period, I don't think that anyone would even be drawn like would want to feel less sadness because I think it's it's you're rightfully sad. Like when even now when I'm anxious about losing something, a lot of times it's 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 uh, because I care about that thing and I don't want to lose it. And I don't I don't. I don't aspire to be less anxious for those reasons. I, it, it only becomes a problem when I think it's in, when it's irrational. It's not supported by evidence, and the anxiety is excessive and it's uh, kind of self-perpetuating. But if it's if it's being processed in a healthy way, then I don't think it's I don't think uh, anyone would even be so motivated to 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 mess with any sort of drug. Well, let's say what would be better than to suffer in an unhealthy way or to have zero suffering about something that is arguably the most meaningful thing to happen to you in your entire life. Let's say it's only zero or a hundred there, which would, which would be worse. I don't, I don't know if there's a clear answer. I guess, I guess it depends how, how bad, how bad the suffering is. And well, let's say it's the example that you gave where it's um, been two years and let's say the mother is just in bed every single day, just crying. Would it be better for them to not feel anything at all anymore to just have all of the feelings be wiped away? For sure. Yeah. If, if, if she can't, if she has, if it's very unlikely that she's able to get out of that funk without the help of some sort of, um, without some sort of treatment, then sure. Yeah. I think that's the kind of case that you'd exactly want to, take something. So, okay. Even if we're in agreement there, that, that issue is, is way more nuanced. Like what if it's one day a week where they can't get out of bed? Like, how do you even, how do you even start to weigh things like that? Cause I think in, in, in most real life cases, you're not going to have, I mean, I'm sure examples exist like the one we were just talking about, but in most cases, the depression, it, it comes in waves. It's not all, it's not a constant state of depression that is the same intensity every day it's probably varying a lot for most people i think you feel extremely depressed yeah. some days you feel completely fine some days you're in the middle you know it's all over the place um you'd want to reduce your suffering to some degree there but figuring out how much is okay to reduce it is is a hard thing i think uh, yeah i think I, honestly that comes down to each each person that's going through it and and whether they think it's getting in the way of how they want to live their life. I mean, that's a very nuanced question that I think each person can decide whether whether the, the negative emotions are too much for them. 
Right, but in a lot of those cases, you're then dealing with people who are, aren't thinking rationally because the depression has gotten in the way of their rational mind. You would then need an outside person to weigh in a lot of the time. So you'd have to sort of establish some baseline as to like what constitutes a, too much too much pain. Well, I think, it's going to seem I different to the middle... person experiencing it than to anyone else. And sometimes their their concept of the situation will be completely wrong or at least wrong to some degree. I think the best way we can do it is let people decide themselves. And the people that are sort of in the middle and, and are unsure whether they should take the treatment, those aren't the most extreme cases anyway. Yeah, I think we can probably agree. Let's say we agree that the best way that we have to do it is to let people figure it out for themselves. But I think we need to acknowledge that this system is extremely flawed and we're going to end up with the wrong answer a good amount of the time by doing that. Even if we end up with the the right answer more often than any other way, there's just very little conceivable way other than, you know, really intense brain scanning, which we probably don't have the technology for yet. There's little conceivable yeah. way that we can get the right answer for should this person be on medicine and how much. Like, it, I think we're going to get the wrong yeah. answer with most people totally. most of the time. Totally. I think, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in that. And it's it's a guess and check process. And it, it's, it requires a lot of attention and and... Uh, action, I guess, and reflection. I mean, yeah, that's that's a hard thing to get right. Yeah, it's like the hardest thing ever to get, to get right. I don't know how we do it. But you like you went into your situation already having a pretty, pretty concrete understanding of how the human mind works. And you've, you've done research on your own, you've spoken to therapists, you've spoken to just other people. I know we've talked about it a bunch. You have way more of a grasp on your own situation than I think almost anyone would have that's suffering some sort of, I guess I'll just generalize it and say mental disorder, but people of all the, of all the people considering medication for their anxieties, you probably are in the highest of highest percentiles in your understanding of what's going on in your head. I think most people have nowhere close to the ability to comprehend what it is they're doing and um, because of that, they, they don't have the other tools to, to while taking the medication, also think about the medication in the right way. I think most people lack those tools completely. So I think you're sort of an exception there. Do you, do you think that's fair or I don't know? Well, thanks. First of all, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I was really cautious about the whole thing because of, yeah. I, I just, I, I, I didn't, I'm very sensitive to like losing control and I, I don't want to, I didn't want to do anything that I couldn't take back or, or like alter myself in some sort of artificial way. So I don't know. I was very skeptical about the whole thing. And I really, I think part of being so anxious and I do think that I am like genetically sort of anxious and ruminative. Also, it also gives me this uh, greater capacity for like self-reflection, or like I'm just much more interested in it, um, for good and for for bad, I guess, gift and a curse sort of thing. Before weighing on that, just to the point that you made about genetic anxiety, I think that there's a distinction, but probably not a meaningful one, between genetic anxiety and anxiety that's shaped by extremely early childhood experience. 
Like whether or not you were born with the anxiety or it happened because of something that happened to you when you were three, it, I don't think that matters at this point because they have the same right. long-term impact. So who cares yeah, which yeah. one it is? To build on, yeah, yeah, totally. I think that's uh, really uh, well said. And I guess it's on, the only important thing is that if someone were to think that it's 100% genetic, then they're going to be like, fuck this. I'm taking medicine I'm, because I can't change it anyway. I certainly don't think that. If, if I had to assign arbitrary numbers – it would be like slightly genetic, uh, mostly learned, but mostly learned in a way that isn't easy to, to just uh, undo and, and, and have more rational, healthy thinking. So in that sense, it, it was something that would be hard to otherwise get rid of. And it was the combination of it being learned at an early age and it being at least to a small extent or just to a small extent a genetic um, – trait made it help easier for me to like decide to to take the antidepressants yeah i think i'll i'll break anxiety down into three categories you tell me if i'm wrong here but i think this will be general enough that most people can agree with it there's genetic anxiety which is probably in many cases the product of an additional mental illness where the anxiety is the cause of something that is truly a genetic mental deformity um so in those cases, medication is probably always, always the best bet. But then you have anxiety that is shaped by early childhood experience and maybe partially genetic, but I think mostly by early and maybe even mid-childhood experience. I think that anxiety would be very challenging to get rid of and very challenging to deal okay. with, but certainly even, possible. Even adolescent, even adolescent experience. Let's, sure. Let's go for it. Yeah. Let's, let's say even up to age 25 where the brain's fully formed. Let's say it could even go beyond even yesterday, there. What? <laughs> even I actually was kind of anxious today when my voice was playing back to me and it, it's not happening anymore. Thank God. Thank him. Could be fucking with me. I meant Sam. Sam Harris. Sam Harris is the god who helps with your Sam. technical difficulties. But yet, I just yeah. want to throw in the the third type of anxiety is do it because I think that we'd we'd be missing something to not mention this. Also, is that the anxiety that is purely circumstantial? It's not a deficiency in the brain that's shaped by any any long term past experience. It would be something that is a job anxiety or a friend anxiety, oh, an anxiety that is yeah. very, very specific to a particular situation that can be like cured that. simply by yeah. just alleviating the situation. Yeah, I, I, I am excited to uh, add to that. I think that rather than circumstantial, it's just like healthy anxiety because in those, I mean, anxiety certainly plays a, a role in human functioning. It doesn't exist for no reason. There's totally rational anxiety that can tell you what stuff is important to you. It can tell you when to step back from an oncoming uh, car. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the primary scholarly work of emotions, which is inside out, you had uh, joy and anger and I think fear and somehow disgust got an emotion. I don't think disgust is that important in this day and age. But um, I mean, anxiety, yeah. And, and that's there's nothing wrong with healthy anxiety. There's actually everything right with like healthy levels of anxiety. It's certainly not this good or evil sort of thing. But well, yeah, I mean, it can become too extreme, and then it sucks. Yeah, just to give the most simplistic explanation I can think of of good anxiety is when we were climbing Jacob's ladder in Copenhagen, 
Uh, I felt some pretty extreme anxiety when we were up in the air about falling to my death. And the reason for that anxiety is because I didn't want to fall and die. So I think that that anxiety was completely normal. Like I was, I was feeling the anxiety and thinking, wow, I'm really anxious about falling. But that, that probably makes a lot of sense because falling would be very bad. I should be anxious about that. <laughs> yeah, I actually thought that I was like um, – I was like, oh, I see Mises' harness. I could so easily just unhook it and destroy it. What the fuck, dude? No, but then I thought, like, wow, that's making me anxious. I like Mises, and I would miss Mises. So I'm just going to help help him to the next part of this ladder. And that's, like, yeah, it's a really good example. It's It's a great example. Thanks for choosing not to murder me and to instead help me climb. That's pretty nice of you. Yeah, dude. These are the choices one makes every day. Yeah, murder or to not murder, and to instead assist someone to climb to the next rung of the ladder. <laughs> yeah, classic um, brush your teeth or eat breakfast first sort of choice. Yes, exactly. It's exactly which like one, that. Which one do you do, by the way? Um, I don't eat breakfast. Any, it's brush teeth because I don't eat breakfast. I just eat lunch and then dinner uh, and then dinner number. I guess I eat lunch and then dinner and then breakfast and then sleep. So breakfast is last why for me. Not just, why not just stop being an asshole and just call lunch breakfast and then dinner lunch? No, dude, I, I eat lunch and then dinner and then breakfast. <laughs> okay. Just okay, based on the true. times that they occur, I think that makes the most sense. Okay, thank you for sticking to the uh, societally accepted time schedule. Yeah, if, you, if you eat at 4 a.m., it's breakfast. Yeah, 9 to 5 or 5 to 9. If you eat at 4 a.m. and you sleep for two hours and then you brush your teeth. Yeah, I don't. I don't do that. That's not how I do it. <laughs> um, wait. So, uh, building off this genetic, this nature sort of nurture debate, because I do think it's really important um, in shaping whether people, like, how much they think they can help themselves through uh, reflection or self growth or 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 uh, medicine. I think it's definitely shaped by people's beliefs on. How, how much of it is genetic. And as I was saying before, I think most of it is is learned, but I think there's a genetic role for it. And I have some examples here um, that I, I would like to read. So uh, Scott Stossel is a writer for The Atlantic, and he wrote this memoir. He's just a, a journalist. I don't know. He writes about journalist things like... Uh, uh, classic journalist. Yeah, it's classic journalists writing about journalist things, you know, like uh, you know Trump doing something evil. Uh, giving himself millions of dollars in tax breaks or something. Um, but he also wrote this memoir uh, about anxiety. And this memoir is like my favorite thing because it's called My Age, my Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, and Dread, and the Search for Peace of Mind. And basically this guy, is um, he's tried everything. And uh, he goes through all these processes with us, the reader, the very privileged reader, if you are like me and you really like what he's saying. Um but he's tried cognitive behavioral therapy, which is cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, sertraline, the SSRIs, basically. Those are the two most commonly prescribed ways to combat um, depression and anxiety. Um, he, and they're both really effective, too, um, sometimes at the same time. So he tried both of those things, and then he's tried, he's tried way more intense things, like... Uh, all the benzo he's basically tried all the shit and basically no matter what he's tried he um certain things have helped for certain times in his life but he's never he's always had this sort of stable sense or stable like 
ex- like more extreme anxiety. I think he gets drunk before doing public speaking, which I guess isn't that uncommon. So does uh, the national dude. Um, he actually gets he he's not doing public speaking though. He's doing public singing. Yeah, it's a little is, different. Uh, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get drunk sometimes before doing public singing too, but not out of anxiety. I think just because of social for social reasons, like when you go to a karaoke bar. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly like that. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's why I do it as well. But yeah, so he, he talks about how his mom is like a deeply anxious person and how he's been on some form of medication or another for 20, 20 years or whatever at the time of writing. So in his work, what I like so much about his book is it takes a historical perspective and he reads all these like uh, ancient texts about anxiety to, to try to understand them, to try to just understand the uh, – the emotion as much as he can. So he's writing about this one guy. This guy's name is Samuel Johnson, and he's like a writer and a poet and a lexographer. What's a lexographer? Lexi- I, I don't know. Lexi- yeah, I don't know either, but he's he does that. He does that, dude. So very impressive. But yeah, so me and Sam Johnson, the 18th century lexicographer, we both share uh, obsessive-compulsive traits, especially in terms of thinking, not in terms of, like, matchstick men. But, um... And like a deep sense of, uh, I think a, a deep, a deep relationship with anxiety and dread, I guess. And and we also share a general disliking for people wishing us insincere Facebook uh, birthdays. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, that's a good, yes. good one. I didn't. Thanks, I'll, I'll, I'll laugh. That was some laughter. Hey, hey, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for justly deciding to laugh. Um, <laughs> so so basically, uh, I'm going to read this passage, but. He he thought that he was wondering about his anxiety and how to like figure it out, similar to how a lot of people do. And he uh, his his biographer said that he seized on the idea that idleness and slothful habits were breeding grounds for anxiety and madness, and that the be, the best way to combat them was with steady occupation and regular habits, such as rising at the same time early each morning. Uh, Scott Stossel, the journalist who's uh, writing this book, he looks at this guy's journal and he basically sees, he feels a really deep sympathy because uh, I'll quote Scott Sossel here. What most endears Johnson to me is his lifelong and plainfully futile attempts to start getting up earlier in the morning, a representative sampling from his journals. So what follows, I'm going to just read, um, is from 1738 to 1781. So 43 years, right? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Thanks. I, I got it faster than you? Well, I was waiting for you to do it. No, I had it right away. Thanks. <laughs> okay, uh, sure. Sure you did. So this is 43 years of one guy complaining about the same sort of thing, like never really quite figuring it out. And the reason I'm illustrating this is that it can be really hard to just on one's own, I guess, to think through certain problems. And and I don't know. That's it, I guess. But anyway, seven, September 7th, 1738. Oh, Lord, enable me in redeeming the time which I have spent in sloth. All right. Uh, Fifteen years later, to rise early, to lose no time. Two years later, I will once more form a scheme of life, to rise early. <laughs> Two years later, almighty God, enable me to shake off sloth. Uh, two years later... Give me thy grace to break the chain of evil custom. Enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. 
So now we're in 1760 in his journal. Great. Um, it's been quite a life for this guy. <laughs> yeah, he, dude, he's an accomplished lexi- 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 lexicographer. So why don't you just shut up, man? I will. I will shut up because of that. No, you don't have to. I'll shut up for other okay, reasons. Thanks. I just want you to it's finish fair. the thing. Okay, I will keep going. Uh, since, since, uh, 1760, resolved to rise early to oppose laziness. 1764, thoughts, to provide some useful amusement and for leisure time, to avoid idleness, to rise early. The next day at 3 a.m., deliver me from the distresses of vain terror against loose thoughts and idleness. Then a few months later, this is a very active year for him in trying to solve this problem in his life. Sounds like it. I resolved to rise early, not later than six if I can. And then a year later, I resolved to rise at eight. I purpose to rise at eight because though I shall not yet rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise, for I often lie till two. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty pretty Uh, ambitious to go from two to eight. This guy's goals set pretty high. Yeah. And eight is still not early. (laughs) This guy seems pretty insane. You would have thought that he would have figured it out by now that maybe, like maybe he should like try and I don't really know honestly he seems like a it's I I don't know how to I wish I could help this guy, um, but four years later, I am not yet in a state to form many resolutions. I purpose and hope to rise at eight, and by degrees at six, <laughs> um, and then wow. five years later at two a.m. To rise at eight, the chief cause of my deficiency has been a life immethodical and unsettled, which breaks all purposes and leaves perhaps and perhaps leaves too much leisure to imagination. A year later, when I look when I look back upon resolutions of improvement and amendments, which have year after year been broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. My purpose is from Easter Day to rise early, not later than eight. <laughs> And then uh, the, the final entry, 43 years later from the start, January 2nd, 1781. I will not despair. My hope is to rise at eight or sooner to avoid idleness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wow. My God. That sounds hard. This is my favorite. This is my favorite thing ever. But isn't it kind of moving, though, that he, like, when he says, why do I keep trying? It's because change is necessary and despair is criminal. He's like against hopelessness he's rebelling against hopelessness which i think is really powerful yeah i do agree with that although i think he's kind of insane for thinking it matters so much to rise early like he should worry about something else yeah i to- yeah, totally not rational i think yeah this is i think he's like whatever his problems were in life which i don't know you're more of an expert on mid 1700s life what do you think his problems were <laughs> He was probably dying of like 27 diseases at the same time. Um, I think the, I think, well, it's just insane. And I also can relate to this time anxiety thing because I think it's a symptom of, of other things. Like the reason that he cares when he wakes up is because of productivity, probably like he's unable to finish writing his scrolls or something in time. So he needs to rise early or whatever it is that he's doing. So like I used to feel this time anxiety all the time, even as far back as like middle school, I, I could even, I don't know if this is a completely specific memory, but this would sort of be the type of thing where like on the first day of eighth grade, I would be thinking, 
okay, there's only 180 days left in the year in this school year till I graduate. And I would sort of be like mentally oh. trying to slow down the time. And I would That's do this. Awful. That's awful. I would do this like every day and it, it didn't really seem to, I, I never really reflected on it until probably college when I was doing it because I didn't want to graduate from college. I was always scared that the next step in life would be worse because of having more responsibility involved than the previous, or I guess the current step was easier than the next step. So I'd always be trying to fend off the next stage in life. And it, it took until college to realize that that's just a completely irrational way to like the amount of anxiety I was causing myself just by doing this stupid mental practice so far outweighs <laughs> any anxiety that I should have otherwise. And I didn't even realize I was doing this until that point. I mean, I guess maybe it yeah. took going to therapy in high school to re to like sort of bring it about. But I like, I didn't even know that this was going on. It was entire. It was, I think really an entirely subconscious process for so long. And I think whether it's this, this thing or other things, I think people have these subconscious anxieties that they never even get a chance to reflect on. Um, this guy that you're referring to in the 1700s is literally writing it down, but I don't even know Samuel that Johnson. It, Samuel Johnson, I don't even know, even though he was writing it down, if he was able to realize that he was doing it, like the whole thing seemed so automated for so long and he didn't even have the realization until later on. Yeah, totally. It seems like in in 1778 he had some realization that that he had been doing this for 30 years, but before that, even before that, it seemed like he just was constantly going I mean, he certainly was just constantly like dwelling on the same thing when probably this is just something that reflects his overall anxieties in life and it's not just like if he actually rose at 8, I don't think his life is going to be like magically cured or anything. Same with like, if you manage to somehow slow down time, I don't think 17 year old me is going to be like fucking blissful. <laughs> right. I was scared of more responsibility. I wasn't scared of time. The time is just a, it's a manifestation of something else that, yeah, that, that was where exactly. I was going with that. Exactly. Yeah, totally. I, and I, that still, for, for me, it's always been like almost physical, like a, at least in recent years, I, I think most of my anxieties, whatever they're about, a, a lot of them manifest in the forms of like discomfort and sensitivity, sensitivity in my eyes to the point where I'm like very self-conscious about them. And I don't even know I'm like too self-conscious to think about other stuff. I'm only thinking about myself and then it makes it really hard to like connect with others. If, if you were to read my journal from the 1700s, it might say like a bunch of stuff about this. eye uh, sensitive self-consciousness, and I know, I know at some level that it's not, it's not figure outable. It's not the answer, but at the same time, it's like really deeply ingrained. So it's, I don't know. It's, it's really uh, funny and tragic. Right. You're talking about your anxiety about making the right amount of eye contact with people. That's probably, that probably stems from just an overall anxiety about how people view you or how people are feeling or just. Like the eye contact is the yeah. portal through which all of your anxieties can come to the forefront, I guess. Yeah. Like you don't, you don't just yeah, care not, about eyes a lot. Yeah. It's not like if I just like took this eye contact class from like a, a, like a really skilled snowman teacher in eye contact that I would just all of a sudden, like everything in my life makes sense. 
I know that at, at, at an overall level, I know that, but at the same time, I always revisit this thing. And it's, it's not quite eye contact just to, to defend my, uh, my pet, um, my pet, uh, irrational thinking pattern. It's more like a, not being sure what to do with my eyes. And also once I start worrying about that, getting so caught up in thinking about it that I can't think about anything else. So it makes me much like worse listener. And I don't like that part. So it just like a really spirals. Well, it's good that we're talking uh, just on audio then, and we don't have video because there's no potential uh, blocking of your comprehension here. I still have to worry about too much, worrying about too much time passing because the clock is visible on my computer. But uh, your your anxiety <laughs> yeah. is covered for now. I guess I guess that's good for now. If we're thinking just in terms of. Uh, in, a very, in the very short term, that's very good. In I the guess. very, very short term, it's very good. <laughs> to bring this back, and maybe maybe we can start uh, closing. So even when I started taking the medicine, the, like the eye, the eye uh, self-consciousness thing has been with me through and through, the whole entire time. And if I, lo- I was looking back at my reflections before this, um, and e- even like t- during the medicine, the main difference was I still would feel the same anxieties. But I, I would, just wouldn't care so much about them. I wouldn't get so caught up in them. So the anxieties didn't go away. It just was. It was easier for me to ignore them. And now that I'm, now that I'm back, uh, fully off the meds, I really have tried to emphasize not buying into that sort of thing. So even when I feel that anxi- anxiousness, uh, not trying to, or the self consciousness, not trying to figure it out or anything, just letting it come and go because. If I buy into it at all, then it's like it just becomes this endless cycle, this endless hopeless cycle. And it's actually been really helpful so far because the anxiety medicine itself didn't really get rid of the problem. It kind of just was a Band-Aid that helped me uh, helped me deal with it. And now that I'm off it, I've, it's actually faded for the first time in years. And I think that's because I just have been very resolved to, to not – dealing with it just just not taking it seriously anymore yeah i think uh that's a that's a good summary and and that's that's awesome that you've been able to do that and whether whether i fully agree with taking it seriously i don't i think i know what you mean just like thoughts are just things that arise in your brain it's not like they're these overwhelming sensations that are permanent you can sort of maneuver through them and realize that okay anxiety is just anxiety like what what is the big deal if i feel anxious and when you start to when you start to think about how certain thoughts in your head are just thoughts then the whole the whole stress just sort of folds in on itself and then it becomes maybe it doesn't go away completely but it becomes easier to deal with that's probably the entire concept there is just an awareness level about what it is that's actually going on is so important. And it's something we talked about at the beginning with people being equipped with the right tools. Um, hopefully whoever's listening to this that didn't really know a lot about this stuff, hopefully they've been able to take that in because even though we're not talking too scientifically about medication and about what depression is, I think we've covered the sort of logical basis for how to deal with these things pretty well. And I think even yeah. though we're not we're not brain scientists. I think this is still a pretty helpful discussion to have. Well, honestly, if you, if you came in to your psychiatrist and 
you talk about this sort of side effects that we've talked about and the way that it works by like changing cognitive biases and then the, the pros and cons and all these different ways that it affects things. When I talked about this stuff with my psychiatrist, she didn't even really know the answers to most of these questions. So I think it, it is kind of a matter of self-responsibility to educate and like educate yourself almost and not just give doctors the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, this is a, this is a point that I guess we'll end on this. I, I think it's kind of funny to realize is that no one no one living now has any more experience in lives lived than anyone else. Like we, we're all doing this for the first time. We're all yeah. living our life for the first time. We've never lived any other lives unless you believe in reincarnation. But even if you do, you don't remember your previous ones. Uh, yeah, we're, we're all kind of just winging it. And I think something like mental health, they're kind of, I think that's, that's a good point. There kind of just isn't, there isn't a knowable answer for a lot of these things. So just to be able to speculate kind of is the answer just to reflect that kind of is the answer. Yeah. Yeah. To just be like really curious about everything. Yeah. Maybe always good to do. Yeah. And by the way, when you were saying, uh, when I said don't take the I self-consciousness seriously, I don't mean don't take the anxiety overall seriously because usually, but usually it's very obvious to me why I'm experiencing that. I care what this person thinks of me or something, or this person's annoying me, like something like that. It's very obvious and it doesn't require such profound reflection. But if I actually just focus on the mechanism itself, then it becomes this never ending uh, cycle. Right. I guess that's, that's a fair distinction. And I think it's a, it's a good one to close on is your immediate symptom of anxiety or of mental strain is usually, I mean, I, I would, I would even go as far as saying it's almost never the root of the problem. And rather than succumbing to the first impulse of, of mental anguish, actually trying to figure out what the root cause is, I think that's, that's a hugely important thing that people don't do enough and probably should be doing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think reflection is awesome. Awesome. However, however one does it. Reflection is awesome and reflecting about reflecting is awesome. And this has been a Whoa. fun, this has been a fun reflection of reflection of reflection. Do, would you agree? <laughs> it's just a reflection of a reflection. Thought you were playing to the resurrection. Turns out it was just a reflection. I've changed the words to the Arcade Fire song to suit our needs. I'm glad you said it was Arcade Fire because I don't know that song. But uh, yeah, I, I like, uh, do you want Do you want to sing some more of it? It was pretty good. Um, um, that's uh that's david bowie in the bridge before he was dead i think oh okay that's sad all right do you want to go look at do you want to go look in the mirrors in our yeah let's uh end this episode and go look at our own mirrors okay sounds good okay thanks for doing this talk jordan as fun as always yeah thanks thanks for uh Thanks for talking about this. Thanks for talking and listening. Thanks yourself. Thanks yourself, (laughs) as the Danes say. You Danes. You guys are weird. We are. We are. I am. You are. Okay. I'm going to stop recording.